as Sam said, we're going to start a three-part mini-series this evening. Um, and if you've been part of, if you're part of our church family, you'll know uh, that over the last few weeks, uh, since the start of January, in our Sunday morning services, we've been looking at the book of Acts together. And we've been learning about the early church. And in particular, we've been noticing what kind of a church it is that the Holy Spirit, uh, by his presence, forms. We've noticed lots of things, and I don't want to rehash any of those. But uh, among other things, we've noticed that the the Spirit-filled church is a a praying church. They pray often, and they pray very naturally. Uh, So if you you start at the start of the book of Acts, you find them in chapter 1. After Jesus' ascension, we find that they return to Jerusalem, and they all join together constantly in prayer. Then as they're seeking God's guidance for how uh, they should appoint somebody to replace Judas, uh, we're not surprised later in chapter 1 to find them praying. In the famous verse in Acts 2.42, we're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the the breaking of bread, and yeah, to to prayer. Peter and John, they were on the the way to the temple that day to heal the man, Uh, but what we would notice if we read that passage again is that they were on their way to pray. Chapter 4, we read of how the community reacted whenever persecution uh, started to kick in. Um, They call a prayer gathering and pray together about what's going on. Why was it the apostles uh, want to appoint the likes of Stephen uh, more recently in our series? It's to ensure that the practical ministries of the church are taken care of uh, to guarantee that that someone can devote themselves to what? To the ministry of the word and prayer. And what is it we find Stephen doing as the stones rain down on him and crush the life out of him? His very last act is to raise his voice one last time and pray. I could go on, but the early church, which Luke tells us about in the book of Acts, is a praying church. It's enough to get us restless, agitated, motivated. We say to ourselves, right, I want to be praying. Um, I sense that that's what I should be doing if God's spirit is on me. That's what spirit-filled churches do. Lord, we want to pray, we might say but we don't know how. We've tried it, and it didn't work. We did it for a while, and then we gave up. Lord, if we're going to pray, you'll have to help us. Lord, teach us to pray. And of course, that's, that's exactly what the disciples asked of Jesus on one occasion. And he answered famously with the Lord's Prayer. But, but to take the Lord's Prayer and to say that it's the sum total of Jesus' teaching on prayer would be to miss a lot. And that's what we're going to try and do with this series. It's to take some of the other things that Jesus taught about prayer, and particularly three stories that Luke records for us, three stories that Jesus told about prayer, we're like those early disciples. We're, we're all ears because we want to learn from Jesus about prayer so that we can pray. 
Before we go any further this evening, I, I want to tell you that I, I'm really encouraged as I come back to look at what Jesus teaches about prayer. So much teaching about prayer can be boring and holier than thou, sanctimonious, and it's a real shock, a really pleasant surprise to find how Jesus talks about prayer. So much teaching about prayer can be laying on a guilt trip to those of us who don't pray at all or don't pray hard enough. Well, this won't be a guilt trip, and it's not going to be boring, because Jesus' teaching on prayer, as I say, is a breath of fresh air. It's in really stark contrast to a lot of the teaching on prayer that you and I may have heard in the past. So I was taught, for example, um, if you're going to pray, your prayer should follow an acronym, ACTS, Adoration, Confession, go on to Thanksgiving, and finally arrive at Supplication. Prayer by formula. It's painting by numbers. If you put the right things in the right places, you'll come out with a a good prayer. And it's all good. Maybe you've been taught that or something like it. That's pretty standard teaching. It's pretty standard teaching, but it's not Jesus' teaching. And it's not anything like the approach that he takes. He's much less formulaic and much more spontaneous and everyday. He says things like, ask, and you'll get it. Look for it, and you'll find it. Knock that door, and you'll find that God will let you in. Jesus seems to teach us to come to God, tell him your desires, keep prayer real and everyday. As well as being taught prayer formulas, I think I grew up hearing uh, talk about prayer being hard work. Uh, You were invited to some sort of muscular prayer meeting to do the work of the kingdom, that kind of of language. And it's undoubtedly true that prayer is sometimes um, extremely demanding. Anyone who takes prayer seriously knows this. But it's totally wrong, I think, to characterize all prayer as hard work. It just, that picture simply doesn't do justice to Jesus' teaching about prayer. For him, whenever a believer prays, it's more like a child approaching a father. They come and they say, Dad, I need your help. It's as natural, as free, and as easy as that. So, it seems like there's quite a contrast between the simple down-to-earth way in which Jesus calls us to pray and the pompous, sanctimonious type of prayer we hear in many prayer meetings. I can't help but thinking that prayers become another one of those places, and there are loads of them, where we try to be more holy than Jesus. His ways are earthy, down-to-earth, immediate, spontaneous. I'm sure that God finds much of our prayer pretentious and tedious. So, we've all inherited these ideas about what prayer is and what it should be. Can I encourage you this evening, before we start, just to loosen your grip on some of those things? Come with a a blank canvas. Free yourself to listen with fresh ears to Jesus. Let him be your mentor and your teacher about prayer. If you do that, I think you'll be encouraged. So, T, 
teaching his disciples about prayer, Jesus told them this story about the judge and the widow. If you have it open there, Luke 18, it's not long, but uh, we will be referring to it. Tells us about a judge in a certain town, and we hear that he neither feared God nor cared about men. Doesn't sound like a nice guy. He sounds to me like he's cynical and hard. And then Jesus goes on to tell us about a widow in the same town. Um, We probably underestimate, uh, we probably don't get this, but widows in, in that culture were the absolute bottom of the social pile. They had no authority, no influence. They weren't used to being listened to by anybody important. So I think it's a deliberate choice to choose a widow to be the person who's petitioning this judge. So here's this widow. She comes to the judge with her plea, grant me justice against my adversary. And already I think we're learning something about the life of prayer. Prayer allows people of no influence to approach the most influential person of all, the great king and lord of the universe. Eugene Peterson says that prayer is a conversation in which all men and women and children, widows and judges, kings and beggars, poor and rich, wise and foolish, saints and sinners are equals. They all have identical access to the ear, attention, and consideration of God. We're really not used to this. Uh, We have learned by experience that, that ordinary people... Little people aren't listened to or heard. It's the big shots who get listened to. If you want to make any waves in modern culture at all, you can't do it without celebrity endorsement. Unless you have a a pop star or a footballer smiling from the advert, it doesn't speak. Importance is what you need to be heard. We're not used to being listened to on our own terms. And yet, this is exactly where Jesus is going with his story. The least influential woman in town coming to the judge, expecting to be heard. It's as though Jesus is saying, you're not used to being listened to. You're used to being put off and put on hold. Well then, be ready to think differently. Get used to being listened to. Get used to being listened to by God. So far, so good. Um, Sounds like prayer will be great. God's going to listen to us. But we'd be misrepresenting Jesus' story entirely if we left it just there. So this widow is looking for justice and she has to wait. And that's a crucial element in the story. We're told in verse 4 that the judge refused her for some time. If you've tried praying and if you've made that an ongoing part of your life then I suspect you'll already know this that to pray is to wait there are people here in this congregation this evening who who would endorse that point of view from their own experience I'm looking down to see, and some of the guys I'm going to talk about aren't here this evening, at least some of them. So that's good. We can talk about them when they're not here. 
Some of you may not know, some of you who are more recently involved with us may not know the recent history of our congregation. If you'd come to a gathering like this about 12 years ago, you'd have found a, a tiny little congregation. And morning congregations wouldn't have been very much bigger. It was a time when Kirkpatrick Memorial was uh, a very small place, had no minister, and was facing potential closure. But some people were praying. They'd been praying for some time, and they hadn't just started praying when their church went vacant, so they weren't praying just for a few weeks or months. The guys I'm thinking of weren't praying even just for years. They prayed for decades. There had been prayer going up in this place for decades that God would revive this church and once more make it a a dynamic vehicle for his kingdom. And it took decades before there was very much evidence that those prayers had been heard. To pray is to wait. It's very much an aspect of Jesus' story. And perhaps you're, you're learning that lesson in your life just now. Jesus doesn't tell us explicitly what the widow was doing while she was waiting. You might think that that meant she, she went once to the judge, asked for the, the justice that she needed, and then she left it. But the story implies that she was doing something very different. Look at verse 4 talks about the judge and says, for some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she finally gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. All the time that the judge is putting off this widow because she's hassling him, she's worn him down, She's called at his office. She's left messages in his answer machine. She's texted him. She's sent him emails. She simply won't let go of this claim for justice. She's relentless in her pursuit. I think, as, as he so often is, Jesus is very insightful about human nature at this point. Very often in life, you have to pester people, don't you? To get what you want. That's how life works. Nothing super spiritual here. This is, this is how life works. If you want to see this principle practiced, demonstrated by some of its best practitioners, I'd encourage you to call at one of the homes of the many families in their church where there are young children. They are genius at this. I can remember probably the best at this in our household was Sophie. Sophie's nearly 10 years old now. She's still... Uh, a persuasive young lady but I remember her as a kid as soon as she learned to speak she put that newfound power of speech to immense effect so a typical conversation would go something like this daddy can I have some chocolate buttons no Sophie you haven't even finished your dinner yet daddy I finished my dinner can I have some chocolate buttons No, Sophie, I'm trying to finish my dinner. Daddy, I'd like some chocolate buttons from my collection box. Daddy, why are you not talking? Daddy, can I have some chocolate buttons? And more often than not, 
so long as the thing she was asking for didn't, wasn't going to do her any serious harm, Sophie got what she wanted. Bad parenting, eh? Persistence. She was relentless. She still is. And her pursuit often pays off. Jesus wants his disciples to be relentless as they pray. And that's the clear teaching of this story. Some of Jesus' parables, I think, are a little bit ambiguous. Um, Quite hard to work out what he means. Uh, Luke tells us here um, what Jesus means. He gives us an interpretive introduction. So verse 1, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to, to show them what? That they should always pray and never give up. There it is. Can't miss the meaning tonight. Even I can't preach it badly enough to confuse you. It's there. Be like the widow with the judge. Be like a child pestering their parents. Don't give up until you've got what you want from God. Wow. Until you've got what you want from God? We need to be clear about what Jesus is promising in this story. Let me point out that the widow's request is an appropriate request. It's an appropriate thing to ask for justice, and it's an appropriate thing, if you want justice, to ask a judge. So what will our appropriate requests, our appropriate prayers be? that we can bring relentlessly before God. Well, we, we talked a moment ago about the Lord's Prayer. If you cast your mind back to the Lord's Prayer, it's recorded for us in Luke chapter 11. Jesus encourages disciples to pray, your kingdom come. Friends, if we pray that prayer for more of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life, a greater demonstration of it in the church, a wider outworking of it in in the community, then I have absolutely no doubt that God will, in his time and in his ways, hear that prayer. In our morning series, we've been studying together in the book of Acts, and we've seen Jesus promise to his disciples that he's going to give them his spirit that he'll come on them in power. So there's an another, there's another appropriate prayer for disciples of Jesus Christ. Here's one we can pray in full confidence. Father, give me more of your spirit. Give me more of the spirit of Jesus so that I can look more like Jesus and serve him better in the world. You see, when I'm praying for a bigger house and a faster car, Well, I shouldn't be praying for a girlfriend, but some of you maybe are. Or a comfortable life. I'm not sure that these guarantees um, that are implied in this story hold true. What is it Jesus says? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will ensure that the other things, the things that we do need, 
will be given to us in the right measure too. Be relentless in your pursuit of God's kingdom and the presence of his spirit in your life and he'll take care of the rest. There's one final aspect of this story I want to think about just for a moment. Look at verse 6. Jesus asks his disciples to listen to what the unjust judge says. It's quite strange. It's kind of like he's not the kind of character you'd want to draw attention to and say, you know, listen, we can learn from this guy. But it's, it's what Jesus does. Why does he take this cynical, hard-hearted character to teach us about God? Well, strange as it is, it's an approach that he takes also in another of these stories in chapter 11, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time. And in that passage, God, Jesus compares God with a grumpy neighbor who'll only give us what we want because he's embarrassed. He doesn't want to lose face in the community, doesn't want people talking about him. Um, so although he has no real desire to be kind, no desire to do good, he eventually answers a request just because of the pressure of social convention. Why would Jesus compare God to a grumpy neighbor and now to a hard-hearted judge? I think it's because he sees into the hearts of the disciples. And he sees into my heart. And maybe into yours. And he wonders if deep down... We think that God's stingy too. Truth be told, we suspect that about God. We imagine that he might be hard-hearted, that he has to be pestered and cajoled into giving his children good things. That's why Jesus begins with this, this neighbor and then today this judge. It's a shock tactic. Jesus compares God with the worst of people. To expose in us maybe a a view of God that's not very favorable. God is not a very nice person. Turn with me for a second to chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. I think these couple of verses confirm that interpretation. Jesus is comparing God here to human fathers who try to give their best to their kids. He says, even though they're fallen people, they know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more, he asks, will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you see what he's doing? He says, if human parents in their sin and fallenness know how to good give good gifts. If hard-hearted judges finally give justice simply to get us off their backs, how much more will God who loves us infinitely give us every good thing in answer to our prayers? If the sinful, the hard-hearted eventually give us what we ask for, How much more will God, who didn't spare his own son, give us the spirit, the kingdom, if only we ask him? 
Friends, what's our view of God this evening? Is he like the unjust judge? Someone who might eventually give us what we asked for, but only grudgingly? Or is he worse? Do you fear that God will finally refuse your request altogether? That he leave you without a measure of his spirit? Without the joy of experiencing life in his kingdom? Maybe we need to allow Jesus' shock tactic to work on us this evening. We need to stop seeing God as the one whose arm we need to twist. A lot of the prayers I was invited to pray felt a little bit like that. If you twist God's arm enough, you might be able to get him to give us what we want. The truth is God's longing to give us good, to give us the best. We need to be won over by the kindness and the goodness and the love of God. I wonder could we leave here this evening with a new picture of God in our hearts. James tells us in the first chapter of his short letter, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. For our conclusion this evening, I I simply want to use the conclusion Jesus gives in his parable. He describes God's faithful response to those who persist in prayer. And then Jesus asks in verse 8, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He's told us in this story what faith looks like. It's the faith that persists in asking, that relentlessly pursues God until he gives us his kingdom and his spirit. And I wonder whether we have that kind of faith, whether Jesus will find it in us when he comes. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a world of instant gratification. We find it hard to wait for more than a moment before we become impatient and lose heart. And here you've taught us in your word that some of the things that you want to give us, the deep things and the good things and the rich things, we we may have to wait for them. It may take some time until it's the right time for you to release them into our lives. Father God, would you give us such a hunger and an appetite for you, such an unwillingness to settle for anything less, and such a confidence in your absolute goodness and love that will persist, that will keep coming back again and again and again and again until, Lord, you give us what we long for, which is more of you. Lord, make us 
every one of us into people who can pray, who long to pray, and who persist in prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.